Now, Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for your word. There's so much truth in life in your word. Father, I pray this morning as we dig into your word that you will use this to conform us into your will. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we're finishing up our summer sermon series. We made it. We made it to the end. This is our last sermon in Zephaniah. We've spent eight weeks now. Well, this is week number eight in Zephaniah. So this is a call to repentance. Uh, you might be asking, where is Zephaniah in the Bible? If you've been here for eight weeks, I hope you're not still asking that question. But Zephaniah is at the end of the Old Testament, not the very last book, but just a few pages before the end of the, the Old Testament, um, a few pages before Matthew. Uh, so if you go to the New Testament, just turn back a few pages, you go through a couple of small books, and you should get there without, uh, without too much t- uh, page turning. But I've uh, pointed out several times in this book, in Zephaniah, he has two recurring themes. And those two recurring themes are that Zephaniah shows God's judgment when people fail to keep him as their only God. And the second recurring theme in Zephaniah is that he shows God's repentance. Or Zephaniah shows God's uh, call to repentance. Sorry, not God's repentance, but his call to repentance. Those who repent and humbly call on him will be spared the judgment and restored instead of judged. So this morning, we're going to read chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, and this is the restoration of the faithful. And the main point here is that second recurring theme. So again, that main point is that those who repent and humbly call on the Lord will be restored instead of judged. So those who repent will be restored instead of judged. This morning, we're going to look at three R words. Well, you're going to hear a lot of different R words this morning, but we're going to focus on three of them. Those are restoration, repentance, and reconciliation. Again, we're looking at restoration, repentance, and reconciliation. So throughout this book, I've also pointed to how this book relates to the gospel. Right? I use the three, the three circles gospel presentation as a visual representation of the gospel. We saw in the beginning in chapter 1, verses 2 to 13, this is God's judgment against Judah. It is for their sin. It is the sin that takes them out of God's design and leads them into brokenness. The, that sin was idolatry, paganism, and false religion. And then we, we read about the brokenness there in uh, chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. This is the day of God's judgment, the day of the Lord, when God comes to judge the world. Right? And then there was more brokenness that we read about in the next, coming, uh, the, the next few verses or the next few weeks. Um, last week was chapter 3, verses 6 to 8, and that was a summary of God's judgment. But in the middle of all that, there was a call to repentance. And that was chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. There was a call to repentance where God said to seek Yahweh, so to seek God, seek righteousness, and to seek humility. And that was a call to repentance. So we're going to hear a similar theme this morning with a little bit of a twist. All right, so we're going to pick up there in verse 9, hopefully. There we go. We're going to pick up in verse 9. It says, For I will then restore purer speech to the peoples, so that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with a single purpose. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my supplements, my dispersed people will bring an offering to me. On that day, you will not be put to shame because everything you have done in rebelling against me. For then I will remove from among you your jubilant, arrogant people, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. So we're talking about recovering God's design. And that was part of this gospel presentation. That was part of the three circles is recovering God's design. And that is in these verses right here. God is saying, I'm going to recover the way the world was when I created it. I'm going to restore the way things were when I created it. So we're going to keep reading. In verse 12, it says, I will leave a meek and humble people among you, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. 
Verse 13, the remnant of Israel will no longer do wrong or tell lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will pasture and lie down with nothing to make them afraid. So I said we're going to talk about three main R words. And that was, sorry, that was uh, restoration, repentance, and reconciliation. There are a couple other ones. And this is another one of those other R words. And that is remnant. Sorry, did I, I not get the, I'm going ahead. All right. Uh, there in verse 13, it says the remnant of Israel. All right, so another one of those R words is remnant. Throughout this sermon series, I've given a summary of Israel's past leading up to this point about how uh, God created the nation of Israel, and then because of David's sin, the nation was split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had a lot of evil kings, and therefore they were judged earlier. The southern kingdom, Judah, had a few good kings. They still had a lot of evil kings, so they were allowed to exist a, a little bit longer. Now, I've given that history several times, but I haven't talked a whole lot about what happens after that. And so this is what God is talking about in this passage when he says the remnant of Israel. All right. So when God destroys Israel by the hand of the Assyrians, he destroys, he kills almost all of the people. A few of them are left. That's the remnant. A few of them are left and they're taken into, taken into exile into Assyria. And then God destroys Jerusalem or Israel, the southern, uh, sorry, Judah, the southern kingdom, the, their capital, Jerusalem. He destroys that through the hand of the Babylonians, through Nebuchadnezzar. And he kills most of the Judaites there. But a few of them are left. The poorest among those who are left, the poorest of the remnant, are left there to tend the fields for the king of Babylon. But some of the richer or prettier or more uh, talented folks are taken into exile into Babylon. And that's where we get our books, David and Esther from. All right. Similarly, when we talk about salvation through Jesus, only a remnant will be saved. All right. Jesus doesn't use this word specifically, but the concept is there. We read that in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. He says, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. So Jesus is saying that only a remnant will be saved. Salvation is a call that is open to everyone, but not everyone will accept it. Remember that first R word? That first R word is restoration. And here it is. Jesus will restore God's kingdom, and he will bring with him a remnant. The remnant that comes with him will be those who have sought him through repentance. That's our first R word is restoration. We're going to keep reading. We're going to pick up in uh, verse 14. It says, Sing for joy, daughter Zion. Shout loudly, Israel. Be glad and celebrate with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has removed your punishment and has turned back your enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord, is among you. You need no longer fear harm. On that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. So we need to talk about King Josiah's reforms. If you remember at the beginning of Zephaniah, I talked about when this book was, uh, when this prophecy was given. And it was during the reign of King Josiah. You see, Josiah became king at a very young age. He was eight years old when he became king. But he didn't start ruling as king at that young of an age. And I think Zephaniah's prophecy starts before Josiah actually starts to rule as king. He is the king, but he's not ruling as king because he's so young. And so we read in the book of 2 Kings how the, the kings leading up to Josiah led uh, Judah away from God. 
And King Josiah comes in. He becomes king at eight years old. Zephaniah starts to prophesy, and he's warning about all this destruction that's going to happen because of their sin. And then we read in 2 Kings chapter 22. I'm going to pick up in verse 15. All right, well, let me give you a little, little more background. When Josiah becomes king, he says he wants to restore the temple of God. And as they're, they're physically restoring the temple, going through and making... Um, uh, upgrades and, and fixing things that had been broken. They're going through and they find the writings of Moses. And so they come in, they bring the writings of Moses to Josiah and they read them to him. And he starts to mourn. And when he starts to mourn, he's, he's mourning because he realizes that this nation that he is in charge of has let, is going away from God. And so he sends a bunch of his leaders over to a prophetess. And this is what she says. She said to them, this is what the Lord, your God of Israel says. Say to the man that sent you to me, this is what the Lord says. I am about to bring disaster on this place and on its inhabitants, fulfilling all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read. So that's fulfilling all the words in the book of Moses. Because they have abandoned me and burned incense to other gods in order to anger me with all the work of their hands, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. That sounds pretty bad. That's kind of what we've been reading in Zephaniah. And then we continue verse 18. It says, say this to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord. So say this to King Josiah. This is what the Lord God of Israel has said. As for the words that you heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse. And because you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I myself have heard. This is the Lord's declaration. Therefore, I will indeed gather you to your fathers and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster that I'm bringing on this place. And see, Josiah would be spared God's wrath, but unfortunately, he would be the last of Judah's good kings. The kings that would come after him would be described as evil or not doing good in the sight of the Lord. And so we read in Zephaniah, going back to Zephaniah, it says, the Lord has turned back your enemy. See, this is merely temporary because once Josiah dies, Judah will continue in their pattern of sin. They will continue to bow and worship to idols, and they will continue to mix their worship with Yahweh with other religions, and they will continue to simply walk away from the faith. And we read in 2 Kings chapter 25, so just a few chapters after what I had just read, that King Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and his soldiers would destroy the city, and that's 587 years before Christ is born, and Jerusalem falls to the Babylonians. But when we look at these verses... Zephaniah doesn't seem to be indicating any sort of temporary salvation, any sort of temporary uh, restraint on on the Lord's wrath. Now, this is because of telescoping. Telescoping is when a a prophet has a vision from God, and that vision might include two or three different events, but they seem to happen simultaneously or maybe immediately after one another. When in reality, when we look back at through history, we see there may be several years or even several decades or several centuries, or in this case, a couple millennia between these two events. So why is it that that happens? It's because as the prophet gets this vision from God, he's looking into the future and he sees these events happening in the future. It's kind of like when you're driving down the road and you're coming up on a mountain range and you might see two mountains that appear to be right next to each other. But then as you drive up closer to them, or even get in between the mountains, you realize there are several miles between these mountains. 
when from a distance they look like they are right on top of each other. When you get there, when you get in between them, or even you, you get that better perspective, you see there's more distance between them. This, this is telescoping. We see this a lot in uh, the prophet's writings. So this prophecy from Zephaniah finds partial fulfillment when God spares Josiah. But ultimately, he's talking about the end times, when God is going to finally and completely destroy his enemies and anyone who has not found salvation through the repentance in Jesus. He will then set up a permanent kingdom, a new heaven and a new earth, ruled eternally by Jesus, the perfect king. This perfect kingdom with its perfect king will be filled with those who have humbly called out to Jesus for salvation, those who have repented from their sins and placed their faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. See, like King Josiah, he was spared because he repented from his sins. Only those who have repented from their sins and repented toward Jesus will be invited into this new kingdom. And see, that was our second R word, was to repent. King Josiah repented and he was spared. God is calling each of us to repent as well. Repent because Jesus has taken the punishment for your sins. Repent through him and turn toward him. Repent and turn toward Jesus because he is our rightful, true, and perfect king. So that's who the last four verses of this book are talking about. It's talking about Jesus, that perfect king. We're going to read that now, starting in verse 17. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. He will gather those who have been driven from the appointed festivals, and they, and will, I'm sorry, they will be a tribute from you and a reproach on her. Yes, at that time, I will deal with all who oppress you. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. I will make those who are disgraced throughout the earth receive praise and fame. At that time, I will bring you back. Yes, at the time, I will gather you. I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. The Lord has spoken. And see, right at the beginning of this section, Zephaniah says, The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. So we go back to our gospel presentation. The Lord your God is a warrior among you. You see, Jesus came and lived life as a human, fully God, but fully human. He is a warrior among us, a warrior who saves. He came to live the life that we couldn't live, the perfect life that we couldn't live. And, but since we sin, we deserve hell. We deserve punishment. But Jesus took that for us. He took that for us. And when we place our faith in him, then we are free to recover and pursue God's design in our life. Through Jesus, through his life, his death, and his resurrection, and only through him can our relationship with God be reconciled. And that's our last R word, was reconciliation. It's only through Jesus. He paid the penalty for our sins. He took our punishment. And he died in our place. But he was raised again in victory over sin and death. And our reconciliation comes only through Jesus. So we get to our application points. Again, our application points are broken down into three points, knowing, being, and doing. That goes back to our definition of a disciple. When Jesus says, um, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. All right, the follow is the knowing. I will make is the being. And fishers of men is the doing. Right, so know that Jesus paid our debt. We deserve to be destroyed like the city of Jerusalem. Even worse, we have sinned against a holy God. It would be completely fair and just for God to send every one of us to hell for all eternity. We deserve to be punished like Judah. But Jesus came and took that punishment for us. That's the first application point, is to know that. Jesus paid our debt. The second application point is to be saved by Jesus. 
To be saved by him doesn't mean to merely know that he came to pay your debt, but to accept that payment for it. It would be like if we were to go out to dinner with a whole bunch of people and everybody ordered steak and lobster and prime rib and, and all this expensive food and you know, there was 40 of us and then the bill comes and I look at the bill and I say, oof, I can't afford that, but you know what, I'm going to pay it anyway. But then my good friend Oprah walks in, I don't know her, but she walks in and she says, you know what, no, I'm going I'm to pay for this. See, she has the means to do it. She could do it with no problem. And I say, no, 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 I'll pay for it. See, Jesus comes in and he says that he will pay this debt that we can't afford. But when we reject him, it's like saying, no, I've got this, even though we can never pay it in full. So to believe in him means to allow him to take the punishment for our sins, to allow him to pay that check that we can't pay. Call out to Jesus and place your faith in him. You can know that Jesus paid your debt, but fail to place your faith in him. And that payment will come back to you. And finally, our doing application is to seek Jesus. See, Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3 tells us to seek Yahweh, seek righteousness, and seek humility. But what does this mean? How do we seek Jesus? This isn't just a one-time thing. When we place our faith in Him, yes, we do need to place our faith in Him. But it doesn't stop there. It is a continual, lifelong process of seeking Jesus. How do we do that? We do that through prayer. We do that through studying the Bible, reading the Bible, and studying the Bible in context with other believers. Because we can read the Bible, and because of our sinful fallen mind, we can misunderstand the message that God has for us. But when we come together as believers, prayerfully studying the Bible, we can hold each other accountable to what it says. It also means to have accountability relationships. See, these are other believers who are helping you to live a life of righteousness. They're encouraging you, lifting you up in prayer, and seeking righteousness with you, and, when necessary, calling out the sin in your life. So to seek Jesus means to be a member in a body of believers, to be a member of a church. Seek Jesus. He is our Savior, He is our Lord, and He is our Redeemer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, again, Lord, I thank You for Your Word and the truth and the life that is in Your Word. Father, this morning in this message, there's so much in there for each and every one of us just to seek You daily. Father, there's a song called Desert Soul, and it says, Lord, I want you, but I want to know you more, or I want to want you more. I pray, Father, that will be each and every one of us. That will be our prayer, that we know you, we want to know you more. We love you, we want to love you more. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we've come to our point of repentance. You can pray right there where you're seated. You can come to the front and pray at the cross. You can come and pray with me. But please do not ignore the calling of the Holy Spirit this morning.